Well, I do want to say hello. It's, uh, it definitely is a summer Sunday. As we can see, many people are gone. Vacations have started. Maybe some of you are on live stream in your pajamas at the shore point. That's okay. We're glad you're with us. And for our missionaries, we want to say hello to you guys also. I know some of you join us. For anybody who's near with us today, we're here for the first time. We want to say welcome. And uh, just to remind everyone that we're now in our summer series. Our summer series is out of the book of 1 John. And we're looking at God's love, as Barb said, in so many different ways. This is what this book's about. And how is God's love in action to us, through us, and in us? That's sort of the idea where we're at. And I was thinking about it. There's so many different ways to be looking at this book. And one of the ways is, is that what John is trying to do is he's, He's trying to bring to the people in these churches what is authentic, what is, what is the truth in the midst of so many counterfeits that are all around them. And we're going to be seeing more and more about the false teachers and things of that nature. Um, and, and so this is where John is going with this. There's other layers of this, but there's certainly one, and it's that bringing the authentic. We live in a world where we really want authenticity, right? We hear that all the time. We live in a world where there's fake news and there's misinformation, where there's broken promises, and, uh, and we think, like, this is the only time in all of existence this has happened. Oh, poor us. But it's not true. It's been happening since the day Adam and Eve sinned. It was certainly happening in this church, the church in Ephesus in those areas when John was an older man, probably in his late 80s, when he wrote this book. And so I want to start out today by, by sharing, really, a story um, from, about my own life, and hopefully this will lead us into this, this whole idea of authenticity and uh, counterfeit. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting uh, with a bunch of leaders, and we had, we're all getting together for the first time. This is the first time we've, we've met one another there was elders from some church, leaders from the Liberty Network. We were all getting together, sitting down. And the person who was leading said, um, you know, to get to know one another, let's just share, briefly share your histories. Well, you know what that's like when you tell a lot of pastors to share their history? Uh, it was like one of those prayer meetings that just go on and on sharing, and you get two minutes worth of prayer. You don't know about any of them, right? But... Um, but, but so here we were, and people were sharing, and, and really it was great. We were getting to know one another, and somehow the discussion shifted to the old neighborhoods in the city. And as I shared my background of living in North Philadelphia in the 50s and 60s, I was asked to share, well, what was it like to live in one of the old city neighborhoods? What was that, what was that like? Now, why would I have been asked, right? Well, basically because I lived there. I lived there during that time in the 50s and 60s. I experienced it. Um, it was authentic to me and to my family. Uh, I could talk from a perspective that many people couldn't talk from, uh, having lived in these old neighborhoods and, and many of the things that were going on. And what we need to see is that John is actually coming from that same perspective. He's saying, listen, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm bearing testimony. I was there. I lived with Jesus. I saw him perform miracles. I heard him teach. I sat down with him. I had meals with him. I saw him die on a cross. 
I experienced his resurrection. I saw him ascending into heaven. I heard his teaching of the kingdom and of salvation and of faith. And if anybody knew what was authentic and true and what was foundational, it was John. And that's how he's coming to the people. He's saying, yes, and I'm sharing this with you. And, and the way I talk and the way my letter is going, I'm doing it in so many different perspectives, so many different layers. I'm trying to bring to you this truth of salvation and faith. And what are the foundational characteristics of this? So that you know, so that you can have assurance in the midst of a world that is full of counterfeits and a world that is enchanting and wants to take you away. This is what John is doing. This is what he's talking about here. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, what, like, the way they train the Secret Service to know counterfeit money? Anybody know how that happens in here? You've heard this illustration before, maybe? Why don't you put those bills up just for a second? So here we are, dollar, five dollar, 20, 100, 50, 10, the $2 bill, which we don't see much anymore. But how does someone who has to know a counterfeit know it? How are they trained? Do you think they get all these different counterfeits and they show them all these different counterfeits? Does that sound like the best way to do it? Well, what we know is they train them to know what the genuine currency is. There are characteristics of the currency that only the people who are trained in this know. Only the people who have the foundational knowledge of these things know. You can take that down. And that's, that's where John is. That's what he's doing in this letter. So, so far, what are some of the things that he's been teaching us? What has been authentic? What is foundational in the first two chapters as he's been doing? Well, the first thing was that Jesus became a man. He took on flesh. He was both God and man. We call that the incarnation. This is foundational. This is, this is a part of what the truth is. And as a result, when this Jesus came into the world, God and man, and he lived in the world, he brought light into the darkness. He revealed the heart of God as he lived in this world. He revealed what it was to be truly human in a dependent relationship with God. And in doing that, our hearts are revealed. And we see the darkness we see the poverty of spirit in our own hearts. And in that revelation, we know that we need to turn and we need forgiveness and we need reconciliation with God. And so that's what he did at the cross. As John said, he purchased this forgiveness on the cross. And when we turn, as Josh talked about last week in this confession of our sin, we're forgiven. We are reconciled. We've been adopted into God's family. We can call him father as my brother prayed just a few minutes ago that we could call him Father. And because of that, we now have fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, who is the gift given to us for those who believe. The Holy Spirit now living in us. And out of this fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flows our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as a result of this, we live out the truth of his word. The word Josh used last week was obedience. We actually obey God's word and this leads to joy. And in doing this, we live 
as children of light. And that's where we're at this week. That's where we're starting. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Let me read. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So what is John saying? The new command, which is yet an old command, is a message heard from the beginning. Sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? But it seems that what he's doing is referring back to the Old Testament scripture of loving God and loving your neighbor that we see in Deuteronomy that Jesus referred to in his teaching many, many times and in his parables. And certainly John had heard this and many of the disciples had heard it. And John has actually put it into his gospel. And certainly we see it very, very descriptively expressed in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Listen to this. A new command I give you, love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. Why is that a new command? We know that's already been there. Ah, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Wait a second, now there's an example of that love. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a lot at stake here. Everyone will know if you love one another. See, in Jesus, we see the truth of brotherly love in all of its astonishing sacrificial glory. And here's the thing. Jesus has enabled us to be able to live out this love amongst one another through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that's in us, that we can love because that same love that's in Christ is now in us, and we can be empowered to do that. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, we are to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And you see, this is the light shining in the darkness. This is the light shining in the darkness of a world of hate and broken relationships. This is really important to God. Relationships are so important to God. And we're going to see about that as we move forward. So what does it look like, this love that he's talking about? Like, we can make up all kinds of ways that we love people, but I love that he does give us descriptions of love in his word. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, is an, an amazing description of what this love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love 
never fails. Well, that's quite a description, isn't it? How many of us, when we read that, are like, wow, if I begin to look at my heart, I got some things that I need to go to the Lord on, right? And let's make it clear. This is, this is something we need to recognize. You know, to hate a brother or sister is not having a disagreement with them or even betraying them. Peter betrayed Jesus or judging or using hurtful words or any variety of sins against another person. No, what makes us people who are living in the darkness and not loving is an attitude that has become more of a habit. It doesn't want to forgive or ask for forgiveness. See, there's a difference between I've done it and now I ask for forgiveness. No, I don't even want to ask for forgiveness. And I don't want you to be coming to me. It doesn't want to reconcile. Have we dealt with people who don't want to reconcile? Maybe even brothers and sisters in the Lord. Wants to stand in judgment. It wants to stand in judgment. I'm sad to say that the church today wants to stand in judgment of each other. It's one of the saddest things and such a mark against Christ and his glory in this world that we stand in judgment over one another because of a, a perspective, because of maybe a political view, because of maybe a disagreement on some of the theological things that we might look at. And I'm not saying there's heresy, but a lot of this has nothing to do with heresy. We just stand in judgment. Or people just want to stay angry. Isn't it great to be around an angry person? <laughs> See, this is walking in darkness and being blind to the love of God in Christ. That's what it is. And I love what Ian Hamilton says in his letters to John. Let me just read this quote. It's in there. Brotherly love transcends all denominational groupings. Now, I'm going to add to that political groupings, social groupings, and ethnic groupings. Now, let's read it that way. Brotherly love transcends all denominational, political, social, and ethnic groupings. It is to be as wide as the world and as deep as Calvary. Such is the grace of brotherly love that it shows that we abide in the light that we live in fellowship with Christ, and that in us there is no cause for stumbling. This is what John is saying is a characteristic of authentic faith. This is how people know Christ himself by the way that we love one another. And I, if, it, if it doesn't get you and make you soberly look at your life, I'm not quite sure what's really going on. This does make me look and begin to think about my own life and the way I'm treating people, and especially my brothers and sisters in the Lord, how I am treating them. And John sort of understands that. This has been, this is a pretty clear word that he's speaking now. This is a characteristic that he believes you need to know. This is on God's heart. And if you're not, if you were one of those ones standing in judgment and anger and unforgiveness, then you need to begin asking yourself some questions about whether or not you even have faith. And you know what? Sometimes in a grace culture, we hate for somebody to say, maybe it's time you really look in the mirror. 
Maybe it's time let the word come to your heart and begin to touch your heart. Then you'll really understand grace. And this is where John is at right now. But John's a pastor, so he knows that these are sobering words. And with his pastor's heart, he also knows that as he brings these words to them, Satan is going to be on the prowl because Satan's going to try to bring accusation. He's going to try to bring temptation. He's going to say, listen, you've done that. You've done that again and again. You think God's going to forgive you the way you keep doing that? There's no way he's going to forgive you. That sin's become too great. Or what? Look at the way that person's treating you. You don't really need to love them. Look at them. They're irritating. Be angry at them. Judge them. That's it. John knows this. And so it's interesting how you can look at this little next section and go, where's he going with this? Or you can say, wait a second. This is the heart of a pastor. And what he wants to do now is come to those people who are soberly being awakened by how they're loving people. And he wants to assure them that they're growing in grace. He wants to assure them that they're growing in grace. And that's where he goes. Let me read uh, verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Wow. Now, at first glance, this breakdown of children and fathers and young men would seem to be age groups. And, you know, some people translating this would say, eh, you know, sort of seems that way. But, but in this context, it seems as more it's emphasizing spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. And that first category, dear children, is John's expression for all believers. He uses it again and again when he's talking to the churches. So, so let me just sort of bring this to you in a way that we can begin looking at how he's assuring us. So, so dear children, all you who believe, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, you struggle in obeying all his commands. And yes, you fall and you fail in loving your brothers and sisters as Christ loves the church. But there is forgiveness. As the Spirit sheds light into your heart about disobedience and your lack of love, you ask forgiveness and God is faithful to forgive. i just spoken about that a little early on, this amazing promise that he's faithful to forgive. So there is no condemnation for those who believe, but you know now, you now know him as Father, a Father who loves you, forgives you, cares for you, and has promised to complete the work he started in you. Dear children, this is your assurance. But wait a second, fathers and mothers. I add mothers to that because it's a general expression. Fathers and mothers, you who have known him from the beginning, from the time the good news was first preached by either Jesus or the apostles, maybe someone who actually saw and heard Jesus as a child. Now there's some 50 to 70 years later. You who now through your spiritual journey have seasoned wisdom can rest in the plans and goodness of the Father, take heart 
and encourage the younger ones in the faith. And that's what I love about an intergenerational church. That's why we want to be an intergenerational church. We want some white beards, and we want some of you guys who are just, I don't know where your hair is at. It's just looking too good for me. But we want that intergenerational church. We want the combination of those who are younger and older. We want some of those who have been through so many things who can speak about, you know, as, as Mike was talking about praying about parenting, someone they can go to and say, hey, it's okay, we've been through this. Let's talk about it a little bit. We can assure you, you'll get through it, okay? That these types of things are really important. And that's what he's talking about here, this whole intergenerational thing. And then he goes on, young men and young women, teenagers, college students, you in your 20s and 30s, starting out your career and your families. Yes, you are engaging in a battle to live out your faith in the attacks of the world of darkness and the struggles of life. But you are strong because the word of God lives in you. And as it does, you overcome the evil one who seeks to destroy your faith by undermining your confidence in God, in God's will, and destroying your relationship with him and with others. Yes, you are under attack. Because you are now the front line. You're stepping into the world, whether it's your high school, whether it's your college, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your neighborhood. You are stepping in and you are representing Christ and Satan is coming against you. Know it. And he wants you to lose confidence that God loves you and is with you and his plan is good. And I remember when I first became a Christian, a couple years after I had become a Christian, my life was changing in so many different ways. And all of a sudden, I just started waking up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was being attacked with these, these, these terrible, evil thoughts. And there was a sense of the presence of evil in my room. And this scripture verse was one of the ones that God gave to me. Young man, you are strong because your love and your faith have defeated the evil one. And I kept repeating that. Young man, you are strong because your love and your faith have defeated the evil one. And as I repeated these words, the thoughts dissipated and the evil presence was gone. And God used this to encourage my heart that he was with me, that what he was doing in my life was a good thing, that he was transforming me from being that person in darkness to being a person in light. Who knew I was going to be a pastor? But he did. And that's where he's at. And that's what he's trying to do in this section of growing on grace. That's where he's going with this. Yes, ask that question, am I walking in love? And really be serious about it and come to the Lord. But know that you can grow in grace as you come to him. Know that you're a child. Know that he is with you. Know that his word is powerful. Know that there is forgiveness and there is assurance. That's where he's going with that. And I love what he says in 1 John 5, 18 to 20. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God 
and eternal life. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for these words of assurance. <laughs> but John keeps rolling, right? So he sort of got that there, and then he goes, but you need to know something else, something else that's really important. I need to make it clear to you that you only have two choices, two choices. Either we love the Father or we love the world. Two choices. We either love the Father or we love the world. And that's where he goes with 15 to 17. Listen to this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Wow. John just moves on because all of this is so connected. And so this love that he's talking about, if it doesn't start with that love of the Father, we can tend to progress into loving the world and moving away from that. And so when he uses the word world here, the word cosmos in Greek, this is a word that in its context can be used in different ways, right? John 3.16, he loves the world. What he's talking about there is the created world, the material universe, the one where he loves the people in the world. But also, when it's used in a context like it is here, it stands for the world of sin, the world that's in opposition to God. It, it's this use of the word world is what we see here in 1517. It represents the unredeemed world, a world under the control of Satan, a world that's living in darkness. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. This is an amazing description of this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. This is a picture of the world without the spirit, without God, without what Christ has done, without the light coming in the darkness. And, and so we can look at this, but John doesn't just stop there. Here's what John's doing. He says, well, I want you to know the things of this world. I, wa I want it defined for you in such a way that you understand what I mean. So he uses three phrases, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, the, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so let's look at them just a little bit so we can get an idea of what he's talking about here. So when we think about lust, we usually think about sexual desires, right? When you think about lust, it's sort of the way it's presented in our world, lustful desires, sexual desires. It's sort of done with all kinds of like graphics and all these different types of things. You don't normally hear somebody say, I lust after chocolate cake, but we probably do, some of us. But that's where he's going with this word. It's not necessarily just, it's not limited to sexual lust. It's, it's a lust or any sinful desire that, that's against the will of God. It is that which constantly fights against the things of God in our life. Constantly fighting against the things of God in our the life. Um, it's the opposite of the desire to do the will of God. 
And I think all of us here would say, yes, that's, that's a part of every minute of my life. That's a part of every thought that I have. It's a part of every decision that I make. It's this flesh moving me, wanting me to do the things that I want to do against the will of God. And, and it's sort of that idea. And then he moves to that and says, so as we move out of that lust of the flesh, there's the lust of the eyes, which means we desire what we see. We desire what we see. In the scripture, the eye is sort of the primary organ of perception, right? It's the avenue where temptation comes in. We see that in the case of David and Bathsheba, do we not? Where was David? David was up, he's on his patio, and he's looking down, and he sees this beautiful woman, and with his eyes he begins to lust. Then he commits adultery, and then out of that adultery, he then moves to moving her husband Uriah to the front lines, knowing that he probably would not live. There's this progression that takes place. In Matthew 6.22, Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Our eyes are closely related to our hearts, right? Proverbs 17.24, say that wisdom in the presence of one who has understanding, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. So what are the lusts of the eyes? It describes someone who's captivated by an outward show. We could say, call it materialism. You could be a part of the advertiser's target group, right? You see a new car, I want it. <laughs> yeah, you see some clothes that somebody's wearing, they look great in, I want them. You see a house, our family needs that. I mean, we, we can go on and on, right? It's this idea that there are things out there. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting things like that. What's wrong is, is when it becomes an inordinate desire, when it becomes an idol. And advertisers want them to become idols in our lives, right? They want those things which they present that we need. We need them so bad. We need them so bad that we need them more than God and we treasure them more than God. And that's where it's moving to. Out of the eyes that we see. And then the pride of life describes the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. It expresses a desire for recognition, applause, status, an advantage of life. It describes the pride in what life can offer me. Everything we desire to have, we want to enjoy we pride ourselves in it. We show it off. We're full of sensualism. We're full of self-satisfaction. Our egos are big. This is who I am. Look at me. Look at what I got. You don't have what I have, you fool. What are you doing out there? I remember when I was in my life before Christ, we would drive around in these cars, and we weren't working because of other stuff that we were doing. And we look at people and say, look at those fools. They're going to work. <laughs> we don't have to work. We're just going to party and enjoy ourselves. Well, as we find out, those things don't last. And we're going to be looking at that in a few moments. But it is that. And, and, and this is sort of this idea. I mean, it's sort of like uh, sitting. How many of you ever gone to uh, like a, a place to get your hair done? And there's mirrors all over the place. 
It's like sitting there, and every mirror you look in, there's you. Me, 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 me. Pride of life, pride of life, pride of life, pride of life. Look at me. That's, sort of where, that, that's where it's at. That's where it's going. And so these three, they overlap one another. And I have a, a, just a, a little graphic up here to sort of explain that. See? It says the seven deadly sins from lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And you see how the circles come together. They overlap one another. You have envy. You have lust. You have gluttony, pride, sloth, wrath. You have hatred and envyings and uncleanness. And they all come together. And this is what he's talking about when he talks about the enchantment of worldliness. This is where he's going with this. This is, this is what happens in our lives. And Galatians is one of those uh, books that really speaks powerfully about life in the spirit and life in the flesh. And certainly starting in verse 19, listen to the contrast between the flesh and those living out of the spirit. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We see this, do we not? I mean, I think about this. I, I, we, we see it so much in front of us that it's amazing to me that I, I, I sometimes get attracted and enchanted by it, right? Uh, how many of us have heard of the Kardashians? All right? I mean... This, they are the perfect illustration of this, are they not? Think about their lives. Think about what it's based on. Think about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and how many people want to be the Kardashians, even though their lives are falling apart all around them, even though there's jealousy and there's envy and there's strife and there's brokenness and broken promises. But look what they got. And look how beautiful they are after they spend a million dollars on their body. And, and we can go on, like, this is what our world has become. We sort of become the Hunger Games in so many different ways. And there's an enchantment to that. This is what D.S. Wells says in his quote. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world as inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies powerful quote and here's the thing the enchantment of worldliness 
It doesn't happen overnight. It's a progression. It, it, it's a progression. Psalm 1 has this to say about the progression into worldliness. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And as many of you know, I used to do a lot of youth ministry and I used to have to share my testimony. And, and this is a part of my testimony. It's this progression. You're going to get the Reader's Digest condensed version here. But the idea is, is that as a young man, as you can see how tall I am, I was even taller. No, I was short. I was, you know, I had gone, gone to high school and I had told people, I used to have cousins who were girls in grade school. They used to get me dates. When I got to high school, I was small. The girls matured much quicker than we did and we were dirt. I mean, popularity was like ridiculous. There was no popularity. And so because my heart craved and because I saw with my eyes like girls that I, I would want to be with, you know, there was, I had to move in that what was going to make that happen. And I began to see these older guys in the schoolyard. The girls from Hallahan would come down. They'd be talking to all the girls. And I think, you know what? Maybe I should just sort of stand around those guys a little bit. And I start standing around these guys a little bit. And all of a sudden, you know, one of them says, hey, what's going on? What, what, are, you, what are you, a freshman, a sophomore? Yeah, yeah, I'm a sophomore. Yeah, yeah, what's your name? And, you know, they sort of include me in a little bit, and you're starting to feel like, oh, wow. And next thing you know, hey, man, we're going to go smoke. We're going to go smoke dope Friday night. You want to come with us? Smoke dope. Hmm. I don't know. Sounds pretty Sounds pretty cool. So what do I do? I'm not going to turn down the invitation. I go, and what do I do? I smoke a joint for the first time, and everybody's happy and hungry. And there's all these girls around. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest thing in the world, man. I'm now in. I'm now in. So I went from standing, and now all of a sudden I'm sitting. I'm, I'm there moving in with this crowd. And I begin, you know, every weekend doing these types of things, being a part of that. By the time I was a senior, I was the one sitting in the seat. I was the mocker. I had progressively gone into that. And what I was doing by the time I was out of my senior year, I was now selling drugs. That's what I said. We were like, oh, we can party. We don't need to do that. And my life was spiraling downward. And I didn't see it until certain things began to happen in my life. I saw friends die. I said, friends go to prison. I saw so many hard things happen because of the lifestyle. And I was now someone who was in the world. It was a progression. And so that's what I'm just saying to you, especially young people. Know this. Know this in your life. Know this in your heart. And then he ends, and I'll just end this quickly, because he says, and there's one more thing with this enchantment of worldliness. It doesn't last. It's going to pass away. You wouldn't invest money in a company that you knew was bankrupt, but this world is bankrupt. It's all going to end. It's all going to go up. We're all going to die. But, but, if you live out the will of God, if you live doing the things of God, if there's that love for God that you have in your heart that moves you out. Jesus said in John 4, 54, my food is to do the will of God and accomplish that work. In John 17, he said, I don't want them out of the world. I want them in the world. 
but I want you to protect them in the world because I want them to be sent in the world in the way that you were sent. And this means it comes full circle, brothers and sisters, because what are the things that last? People and the Word. People and the Word. Precious to God, people, the Word which instructs us and leads us and tells us how to live. And so basically, we have come full circle. How do we do it? We walk in love. How do we do that? By growing in grace. Then we no longer become enchanted by worldliness, but we live so that we can influence our world and be salt and light. That we can be those who impact this world for Jesus because the lives we're leading. And I, I want to say that to you guys who are teenagers. I want to say it to college students. And I want to say it to the oldest of us here. It never ends. It's who we are. We become salt and light. We become the aroma of Christ. We become ministers of reconciliation where people are struggling. We become ambassadors for Christ. We bear witness and we hold out the word of life in a very crooked and depraved generation. Where is the truth? It is here and we have it and we can bring it and we can love people with it. Let's not forget. Let the challenge of walking in love move our hearts. Let the assurance of who we are in Christ encourage us. And let our eyes be open to the progression of worldliness that can take us and rob us of the things God has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much today for who you are. We're so thankful, Lord that you have called us to yourself. We're so thankful that you give us words of assurance and truth, that you bring light to our hearts, that you give us the ability to love, to love people in a way that you love us, that we can actually be brothers and sisters who reflect the love of God towards us so that others would see and say, that's the type of community I want to be in. May that happen in our homes. May that happen in our bridge church. May that happen in your church, wherever your people are, Lord God. Help us to see where we are being enchanted by the things of this world and quickly come and say, forgive me and help me, Lord. Deliver me so that I might represent you in a world that's so desperate and broken and needy. May we be the people of love you have called us to be, Lord God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and end with this song.